BYU professor and artist Anthony Sweat wrote in his recent book, Repicturing the Restoration. When United States founding father John Adams learned that the famous painter John Trumbull was going to undertake a massive panorama of the Declaration of Independence, Adams wrote Trumbull a letter and asked some poignant questions, stating an important principle. Quote, A few questions or two. Who of your profession will undertake to paint a debate or an argument in the legislature? Here, the revolution commenced. Then and there the child was born. Truth, nature, fact should be your sole guide. Let not our posterity be deluded by fictions under pretense of poetical or graphical licenses. End quote. Brother Sweat continues, Trumbull didn't choose to depict any arguments or fights. Instead, he showed a group of 42 men sitting or standing calmly with the document in hand, ready to approve. Generations later, we can mistakenly think that the Congress was peaceful and all were united in declaring independence, when, in reality, there was abundant difficulty in the process. Lynn manuel Miranda, in his smash Broadway hit play Hamilton, originally proposed starting the play with a song called No John Trumbull to call attention to this conflicted reality. Here are the words. You ever see a painting by John Trumbull, founding fathers in a line, looking all humble, patiently waiting to sign a declaration to start a nation, no sign of disagreement, not one grumble, the reality is messier and richer, kids. The reality is not a pretty picture, kids. Every cabinet meeting is a full-on rumble. What you're about to see is no John Trumbull. Our study this week places us right in the middle of one of many complicated stories of the Bible. Far from trying to simplify or streamline it, we want to sit with it this week and allow ourselves time to consider just how our own paths and experiences in life are a lot messier than we might like. In short, what you're about to study is no John Trumbull. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey everyone, welcome to another action-packed week of the Scripture Study Project. This week is Genesis 24 through 27, and we're excited to study with you, uh, excited for some... Um, action-packed. Action-packed. <laughs> I'm going to say some interesting stories, uh, not that we haven't had some already, but some interesting stories now and coming up in the next couple of uh, weeks, and so it makes for a, a, a fascinating study. Well, I'm feeling pressured now because it needs to be action-packed. But I, I guess to be clear, it's not our podcast that's action-packed. It's the scriptures, right? And it really is. Oh, I'm expecting some, uh, what are the words, the the comic book words, pow, zap, bang. Coming from me? Coming from you. Oh, wow. Yeah, see, I am feeling very pressured. <laughs> but no, we'll use all the words of action-packed, excited. We usually say we're excited. And this week is... Um, no different. Although I feel like we've got a little bit of a different study ahead um, for these for these chapters that are, well, action-packed and just a little different. Well, what we want to do as we've as we've studied together, 
uh, maybe to, to peel back the curtain a bit, we when we prepare for the podcast, we both kind of study individually, and then we share thoughts throughout our study back and forth, and then we sit down and kind of think about, okay, what are we gonna, what are we gonna say? How are we gonna merge together the different studies that we've had? And as we were talking about this study, we thought, you know, there's really just one idea that's kind of captivated us as we have read chapters 24 through 27 and the story of Rebecca and Jacob and Esau. And and so we want to just dive in on that one idea, share some thoughts in maybe a little bit less organized fashion than we normally do, but with the hope that, as always, it generates and begins a study for you that means something, where the Lord can speak to you and give you specific instruction and revelation about your individual life. So what I want to do is point out three thought threads that we've kind of woven together to create this one idea that we want to talk about. And the first one comes from a phrase in the King James uh, of Genesis 24, 27. Now, other translations uh, have a simpler translation for this verse, but I kind of like the King James inserted words here just for the way it made me pause. So 24, 27, we jump right into the middle of the story. Abraham is looking for uh, a, a spouse for Isaac. He wants that spouse to be someone that uh, is, we would say, in the covenant or, or in the covenant-keeping family. And so he sends his trusted servant uh, back to his home territory to find someone that matches a certain description and to bring that someone back so that she can uh, join Isaac and his family and, and keep the promises given to Abraham going forward. But I love this in verse 27. This is the servant. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I, being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. The phrase being in the way is what stood out to me, and I maybe it created a mental image for me of uh, someone being in the flow of God's guidance. And because he's in that flow, in that river, on that path, or in that way, he's able to go where God intended him to go. So that's the first thread. The second thread is... Uh, a oft mislabeled idea that I hear quite often, I've seen illustrated quite often, that uh, in a way that doesn't match what the actual spelling of the words are. We use the phrase straight and narrow path quite often in the church. It shows up in scripture. Uh, the Lord says it in the New Testament, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to salvation. Uh, and of course, uh, in Lehi's vision of the tree of life, there is a straight and narrow path, and we talk about that. However, the way we most often talk about it is by using the word straight, S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. But in the scriptures, the word is S-T-R-A-I-T, and those are two different words. A straight, without the G-H, path, 
isn't necessarily a linear path. It is a path that's narrow and navigates uh, between two obstacles. So if you think of the noun strait, there are straits, geographic straits, where it's a waterway passing between two land masses. And a narrow waterway where if you divert too much to one side or the other, you run your ship aground uh, and, and it can be catastrophic to your trip. That's the idea of a straight and narrow path. It's a passage that's, that uh, protects us from dangers on both sides, but isn't necessarily linear. With this, I always think of the picture of an aerial view of like Lake Powell or rivers, you know, these mm. canyons being built out. Or more recently, what me and Zach were joking about is this is not a Utah road. It's a Pennsylvania road because <laughs> isn't that exactly what it is? Utah roads were very straight and very spacious. Here in Pennsylvania, you're just like weaving in and out. And But it's not with mountains like you would see in Red Mountains, like you'd see Lake Powell, but with trees all around. So just winding in and out. So anyway, that, that gives maybe a mental image of this straight that's an AIT. Yeah, yeah. The third thread is one I'm borrowing from uh, an idea I've read recently in a book called Range, uh, which I think is a fabulous book. If you want just an interesting read, it's all about generalists surviving in a specialist word world. Uh, but one of the points made by this book is that our, our human narrative quite often emphasizes and honestly simplifies the path people take to success. We like to tell very linear stories where someone starts young with a vision of what they want to be and they stick to that vision with determination of grit and they go from A to B to C to Z and they become the greatest at whatever it is they're trying to become the greatest at. Cue the Olympic stories, right. the Olympic winter stories right. that just make you cry, right? Because yeah. they're awesome. And in some cases, those stories are true. But what this book uncovers, the research it shows, is that those are exceptions, not the rule. Even though when you ask people about their specific human journey, they will always say, well, I'm not like most other people. My my route to wherever it is I'm at was was kind of a twisted one or it took me on detours and I'm not like everybody else, even though everybody is saying that. And so the point of the book is our meandering path that we take through life from different interests to different hobbies to making mistakes, it's not just, uh, it, A, it's not the exception, it is the human experience. And it's also not something that's a detriment to us, it's something that's desirable. Our meandering experience is the very thing that gives us perspective and experience to bear on whatever it is that we're trying to become. Now, we may talk about some more specific examples of these ideas, but those three threads being in the way, the straight, not straight, and narrow path, and the idea of range and accepting our human meandering, thread together and lead us to ask this question. What, quote, way does the Lord have for me? And as you ask yourself that question, you can insert anything at the end of that. What way does the Lord have for me to strengthen my family? What way does the Lord have for me 
to improve my spiritual habits? What way does the Lord have for me to better teach my seminary class? Or what way does the Lord have for me when I've been a disappointment or when I've been disappointed or when my way doesn't look the way that I thought it was going to look? I think that there's so many applications to this question. And I think that this story of these people, I mean, we've been learning about them the past couple weeks, this family, but I think that it can be so interesting. And we'll, we'll talk more about this. Obviously, we're going to be answering the questions that we found here. But I think the story of these people that we are learning are not perfect and that have not had a very linear path through their life and that have had some weird setbacks and strange things happening in their lives um, are still people that the Lord communicates with, that talks with, that he guides, and still people that are seeking for his guidance even when things have looked quote unquote unconventional, which whatever that means. Um, we all have our own stories and I think that the Lord is very interested in helping us find our own way. So let's start with the story of Rebecca. Um, because that's where chapter 24 starts. We learn about her. Zach already mentioned that Abraham's servant goes to find her, journeys back to their homeland to find someone worthy and able to come into his family for his son Isaac. And the story unfolds. You'll read in chapter 24 and 25. It, it's almost picture perfect. Mm -hmm. It's really too easy. She agrees um, they find her, she's at the well, she says the right words that they thought she was going to say. They have place for her at her house. At Rebecca's family has place for him at her house. All of it falls in line. Um, and then she does come back and she, she sees Isaac when they journey back and they are married and they live happily ever after, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Um, well, I shouldn't say they live happily ever after. They start out happily ever after. And you think this is this is kind of the perfect story. I, I read wrote in my scriptures like that was almost too easy, especially as you go through the rest of the, the journey that she has through her life. Um, she isn't able to bear children for many years. And obviously that's a struggle for them. Um, and then Isaac and her both pray to the Lord, and she becomes pregnant with twins. And that's where I'm going to pick up. This is in chapter 25, starting in verse 21. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. And then this, verse 22. But the children inside her struggled within each other. And she said, Why is this happening to me? And I love that the next verse talks about her, that then she went to inquire with the Lord for, for her struggles. And we learn the conflict. Her children begin to supposedly struggle within her inside the womb. So maybe, I don't know, I wonder how this story was told. Was this her feeling a premonition that there was going to be something happening between these two sons? Was it actual, I mean, she has two twins, so of course she feels something going on, but... Um, I wonder I wonder what that felt like for her. Um, but then also the question of why is this happening to me? I think that's a question that we can all relate to as we struggle to find our way through life and what whatever our situations are. Um, and I like that we see her asking that simple question 
because she asks the question and then goes to the Lord in prayer. And we see the story unfold as Jacob and Esau and their family's story continues to grow because the struggle doesn't necessarily get easier. And the interesting thing that I found about the story is that it's you can't really put a fault onto anyone in this story. It's not that one person did something horribly wrong or one person did something that was right. There's really not a hero, I guess, to identify in the story, which is maybe what makes it so rich. Um, there's no hero in the story. Everyone's just maybe trying their best. I don't know. You see someone, Rebecca, deceiving. Her her path becomes not as linear as it once was, which is maybe why she asked the question, why is this happening to me? I need the Lord's help because these children are not going to be the picture-perfect story that I was hoping for. Well, I like that point about there not being a hero because we're predisposed when we read scriptures to look for heroes and unfortunately, when we look for heroes, we tend to simplify the characters. And if you read close enough, it's pretty obvious that the writers of Scripture are not interested in conveying to us faultless heroes. Uh, go and find one. You find, aside from the Savior himself, go and find an, a person in Scripture that is portrayed by the writer as faultless without any kind of blemish or mistake. I can't think of anyone, and I don't think you could either. So the point of scripture isn't to convey to us these heroes, it's to show us how humans find their way to God, and of course, how how merciful and kind and empowering God is to them. And I think to indicate that this, again, meandering experience that they're having isn't something that God winks at and hopes that they'll get over. It is the very stuff of their human experience. It's supposed to be like this. Well, and I think that's why I loved the story of Rebecca here. She isn't, maybe is the, isn't the hero that you expect her to be when we're introduced to her mm -hmm. in chapter 24. Because we learned that she has a favorite son and she favors him. And then she, as it goes on, the, the birthright and the blessing, she helps Jacob deceive Isaac for the birthright so that it could go to her favorite son. So you see this kind of complicated story and you know, we don't really know the answers to why she did it or how it how it occurred and how it happened. But I think we can see that struggle of that humanness, which I think makes this journey so relatable and so important for us. Well, I like that a lot. Um, Rebecca has been fascinating for me to study. I, I, I love <laughs> I love Rebecca for the reasons that you're saying for her humanity and her complexity. Um, I read a commentary that kind of made me prickle a bit. It was a critique of Rebecca as a mother, basically saying she's a horrible mother. It was a very 21st century lens they were using. You know, she, uh, as you said, she gets her son to deceive her husband, and uh, which I don't think it's fair to read that lens, that presentism lens back on something that happened anciently. But even within the text, I don't think it's appropriate. Uh, Rebecca in the story is always very obedient, quick to obey. Uh, she's very like Abraham. She runs and hastens to, to be righteous and to be obedient. 
uh, her family looks to her to make the decision about whether or not she should join this covenant family. She's the one that says, I will go. She's not compelled. And uh, she's the one to whom the Lord gives the revelation that these two nations struggling within her will battle and that the older shall serve the younger. So the Lord tells her in Revelation that Esau will serve Jacob. And yet, when they're born, it's obvious that Isaac prefers Esau. And so one way to look at her actions in 27 is Rebecca doing her, her human best to try and see that the promise of the Lord is fulfilled. And it uh, maybe isn't the best looking way, and it maybe isn't the most direct way, and uh, could it have been done a different way? Absolutely. But I love that this is a human who trusts God, believes in his promises, and is doing all she can to try and make sure that they happen the way that it's been revealed to her. Um, as I've studied Rebecca, I've, I've really wrestled with what we pull from her story and the story of Jacob and Esau. And um, two thoughts that have come to me. One is, I think that, as I mentioned before, this humanity was intended in the narrative. I think it's it's there on purpose, not just because it's true, because these were people and we're, we're being accurate to who they were, but also to indicate to us that, uh, well, if you're an Israelite listening to these stories, one of the messages you're going to hear is, we have always been a people that have had to struggle for, um, for our lives. Um, we've struggled in the wilderness. We've struggled in bondage. We've struggled in trial. Uh, if you're an Israelite or, or a Jew and you're reading these stories, that's the message to you is we're people who struggles even though we're favored. And to us as modern readers, I think we can pull a similar lesson from that. But the other thing I think we can look at is see, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we read the story of Enoch and the Lord weeping because people on the earth don't love each other. They're filled with hate. And of course, that causes the flood or at least that uh, leads to the Lord flooding the earth. And he makes a promise that he won't do it again, which means now humanity has to figure out how to love each other. And we are not good at it. It takes a lot of practice. And I think this is the story of people practicing love. Uh, it started thousands of years ago and it's still ongoing today. And I like that we're given that space and that time to practice the whole point of why we're here on the earth in the first place. And maybe also to make us look in faith and anticipation to the Lord who can fill us with love and iron out uh, the crooked bends in our, our lives and make the weak things strong and, and fill the gaps, I think. Reading this makes us look forward with hope to the brother who is perfect and uh, the father who is all-seeing and all-knowing. Well, something that I hadn't intended to think, but as we've been discussing, I realize how obvious this is, but that Christ is the center of our way, or it should be. Um, so as we ask ourselves that question of what way does the Lord have for me or how what journey does he have for me? Um, or what does my journey look like? I think that we can remember that 
Jesus Christ is at the center of that and that we can, he can help us and direct us and lead us um, as we seek that, that if we point ourselves towards him, I think we're headed in the right direction. Even if that direction isn't the linear path that we expected it to be, right? Yeah, I like that a lot. Well, hopefully this gives you a starting point as you ask yourself that question. Before we end, uh, I want to share just one potential connect idea as you study this with others or teach it to students. And it actually comes from this very principle. Um, If you're uh, one of my seminary friends listening to this, then you already know this. But if you're not, then uh, and you're teaching seminary, you're feeling this. January, February, March uh, are difficult times to teach seminary because, especially early morning seminary, because it's dark, it's cold, we're done with the holidays, and now it's just a long trudge until the end of the year, and students feel it. And uh, so some of the most common comments I get from teachers around this time of year is, boy, it's so hard right now to get students to talk and to share and to comment and to make things live. I had a, a teacher that uh, I was talking to this last week and they're just saying, we just feel like we've got to cram sunshine down their throats because it's it, otherwise it's just so dark. And, and I totally get it. We all do. And there are, of course, practical things we can do with that. But, but the thought that's come to me repeatedly is I've heard these uh, and felt these feelings myself is uh, how important it is that we persevere through the meandering way. In Genesis 26, Isaac builds three wells and then he builds an altar. And the three wells each have a name and each name is symbolic of something. The first well is named Essek, which is Hebrew for strive. The third well is Sitna, which is Hebrew for opposition. And the third well is Rehoboth, which is Hebrew for place or room. And I love verse 22. And he removed from thence and digged another well, and for that they strove not. And he called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, For now the Lord hath made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. I love that it takes striving and opposition before we get to the room. I love that the Lord provides room for us to experience that striving and opposition. And then I love that in verse 25, Isaac builds an altar for covenant. And of course, next to that altar, digs a fourth well. And so as we're thinking about teaching seminary, of course, there are practical things we can do to help students get uh, participate more in class. Or if you're teaching your own family or you're studying yourself and you're feeling the, Dece- or the, the February lull, just remember through the struggling and the opposition, eventually comes the room, the space, and then the covenants. And, uh, and we shouldn't maybe be too impatient when we are in the striving or the opposition part of the pattern and be a little bit more faithful and optimistic at the room and the covenants that might be coming. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope that this begins a fabulous study for you, and we look forward to studying with you again next week.